This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Wednesday, December the 6th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown. Coming to you on AMI-tv, I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, accessibility, 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 or maybe in this case, inaccessibility. The Mapping Our Cities for All project shows that several Canadian cities are not accessible. Dr. Victoria Fast from the University of Calgary explores the findings. And speaking of universities, the season for post-secondary applications is here. Elizabeth Moeller gives you advice on what you can do to make your application shine. That and so much more coming your way over the course of the next couple of hours. But the show begins with the top story of the day. And guess what? It also has to do with accessibility and disability because Stats Canada has released some new data about disability. StatsCan says 27% of people 15 and older reported having at least one disability in 2022. Putting that in real terms, that's about 8 million Canadians. 72% of Canadians with a disability reported they encountered some form of barrier to accessibility within the last year. It asked people about 27 different types of barriers, including building entrances, lighting or sound levels, public sidewalks, and of course, other barriers. Council for Canadians with Disabilities National Chair Heather Welkes says that is a reality that should push governments to help reduce accessibility barriers. And keep that story in mind because that's going to relate to the Daily Poll and the interview with Professor Victoria Fast in about an hour's time. Speaking of an hour's time, the Bank of Canada will make its latest interest rate announcement a little bit later today. Analysts expect the bank will hold the rate steady. The news will drop in about an hour. I'll share it with you as soon as it comes out. Staying in the world of finances, Canada's Financial Intelligence Agency has hit the Royal Bank with a $7.4 million penalty for non-compliance with anti-money laundering policies. Don Kelly explains. Fintrack says the violations include failing to submit suspicious transaction reports where there were reasonable grounds to suspect ties to a money laundering offence. The agency tries to pinpoint money linked to illicit activities by electronically sifting millions of pieces of information each year from banks, insurance companies, money services businesses and others. It then discloses intelligence to police and other law enforcement agencies about the suspected cases. Don Kelly, The Canadian Press. And coming back to your money, a new poll suggests a majority of Canadians want the federal government to spend more on three priorities, healthcare, housing, and lowering the cost of living. But they also want Ottawa to freeze or maintain spending in other areas, including defense, indigenous services, and international aid. Here's where the data gets really wonky in this Leger poll. 79% of respondents 
to the Leger online survey, said federal spending needs to be reduced in order to ensure the budget is balanced in the coming years. But also, 72% said some Canadians could be hurt if the return to balanced budgets happens too quickly. So cut spending, just not in a way that hurts me. Uh, you know, humans, we are, we are what we are. We're people who want things both ways, and life is not a Backstreet Boys song. Okay, one more story for you, and this one comes from, I guess, the oddity file, but definitely interesting, and I think anybody who uh, shares a bed with a snorer might uh, have something to say about this, because more couples are choosing to sleep in separate beds or separate rooms. Alex Stone has the story. A recent study found more than a third of Americans are opting for something called a sleep divorce, sleeping separately from their partners at night. And Dr. Alicia Roth of the Cleveland Clinic says it's a healthy thing to do if partners are having a tough time sleeping. Maybe one snores, one stays up later than the other, or you get too hot sleeping in the same bed and that it can save a marriage. It's not necessarily a negative. She says lack of sleep leads to impacts on mental and physical health. She says nobody should feel bad or guilty sleeping in another bed or another room. Alex Stone, EBC News. Alex Smythe, I've been told that my snoring uh, wakes up my entire apartment building. So so I understand why some couples, especially one who might be attached to me, uh, would say, no, no, we need to do a separate rooms, maybe even a separate buildings approach. Well, and, and that's it. And having gone through years of camping and sleeping communally with a bunch of other people and some being very loud snores, I, I can I can emphasize with that. I, I understand the value, you know, and, and the key there is getting a good night's sleep, especially if it's there's a compatibility issue. And, and as a, uh, Alex Snow mentions in, in, within that report is the fact that, you know, maybe some some people stay up later than others. You know, it's like if someone's a light sleeper and, and someone tosses and turns a bit too much or someone's hot, the other one's cold and some hogs them like it, you know, it's, it's, it's all that like frustrations at night. A good night's sleep is so valuable. <laughs> So I, I get it. I get it 100%. Laura Bain, I've been told that snoring is an evolutionary defense, though. It's a strong evolutionary trait that dates back to caveman days when I was keeping, when, when my ancestors were keeping uh, saber-toothed tigers out of the cave with our loud snoring. Yeah, it doesn't sound like it's too helpful in terms of uh, procreating, though, <laughs> so I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> okay, well put. Let's leave it there. At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, that's where you find the daily polls. Yesterday, by the way, today's poll is not about snoring or sharing a bedroom. Tuesday's poll was all about how are you feeling about your personal finances this time of year? 18% of you said good, 47% of you said okay, 35% of you said bad. Today's daily poll, all about accessibility features in your city. Now, the conversation with Victoria Fast in about an hour is going to be framed in the negative. So let's see. Let's see if we can find a bit of positivity amongst myself, Laura Bain, and Alex Smythe here. What does your city slash region do well when it comes to accessibility? Building entrances? Elevators? audible crossing signals, or accessible websites. Laura, I know that sometimes through the disability lens, it can be hard to find these victories. 
I don't think Toronto is elite at this, but there are a lot of audible crossing signal opportunities, especially at the major, major streets and along major intersections. So I would say if I was to give Toronto a little bit of love, it could be done better, but I would say Toronto does fairly well in regards to audible crossing signals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and certainly, you know, Halifax is an older city, so there's lots of um, accessibility challenges and also just lots of decisions that need to be made to improve accessibility. But uh, I think audible crosswalk signals have been improving. They've been putting them in. My understanding is every time that they replace a traffic light, uh, an audible cross signal goes in, but there's also a certain number that they um, need that they're committed to doing every year. Now, don't quote me on that. That's just kind of my understanding of it. But I know anecdotally, I have been seeing them increase around the city. I also wanted to mention municipal uh, recreation facilities in Halifax, because mm. I think that they're sort of getting that piece right. Um, they had a swimming pool go in on the Halifax Commons this summer that had a lot of accessibility features. I haven't been to it, but I did hear quite a bit about the accessibility, including, you know, a lift to get into the pool and things like that. And with the Halifax Amera Oval, I know they, it was a lot more than just a token effort. So I can assume that it's kind of been the same with this swimming pool. That's so I, I've seen them. I've, I think they're doing a good job with recreation facilities. You know, that's a good answer. And I'm surprised I didn't put that on the poll because I've also seen that at a couple of arenas around town when there's either a, uh, a retrofit or a renovation going on, that it does seem like parasports and accessibility and the importance of recreation has popped up as a priority in that part of city planning. That's a really good answer, Laura. I do what I can. <laughs> okay. Alex Smythe, what about you? What about uh, over there in the Burlington, yeah. Hamilton neck of the woods? Again, I know I know this question. It's hard to find these wins because it's mm -hmm. more important to address the inaccessibility than necessarily the wins. But you want uh, a little bit of positivity on a Wednesday. Yeah, you know, and I, I was thinking about this because Burlington and Hamilton are kind of very different as in, you know, not just population size. Hamilton's over 500,000 people. Burlington's under 200,000. But it's also like kind of the age of the cities and stuff. So you you start to think about, okay, what what do the, the actual public spaces in the cities look like in terms of like the building entrances and, and elevators, things like that? I think Burlington does a pretty good job when it comes to the public spaces. Uh, the challenge, especially um, also extending into Hamilton, once you get into anywhere that's a bit older and, and uh, hasn't been updated, especially when it comes to doorways, things like that, it, it's a bit of an issue, but they, they try to make strides where they can. I, I think uh, the the website side of things, like, and I, I just did a, a, a quick glance at uh, the Burlington Hamilton websites, and for Burlington, accessibility is literally the first tab. So, so that, that's a positive sign. When you go onto their city website, you're going to find accessibility first before anything else. And so that is an, a positive improvement on, on that regard. And the same thing, I think, with, as you mentioned, Dave, with Toronto, it's like there, there are those audible crossing uh, lights and, and indicators. They're around the major, major hubs. They're not everywhere. You'd like to see it improved, but, you know, it's, they're they're working and and getting them in more spaces, being more prevalent. But um, I think it's really yeah. It's like once you get more of those older buildings and in those retrofits and really start to expand the accessibility of that, I think that will make a huge difference to both cities. Well, thank you both for your insight on this one. At Accessible Media on Twitter is where you can vote on the poll. At Accessible Media Inc is where you can vote on Facebook.
Think about positivity, about what your city or region does really well when it comes to accessibility. You can also chime in via email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or you can pick up the phone and give the show a ring, 1-866-509-4545, one 509 1-866-509-4545. Coming up after the break, a couple of tenants in the Toronto area are going on strike, a rent strike against some of the country's biggest corporate landlords. One of those tenants, Charlene Hendry, will give you a little more insight on the story. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in audio at amiplus.ca. back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. A couple of weeks ago, there was an article in McLean's magazine about rent strikes. Toronto tenants are leading a rent strike against some of the country's largest corporate landlords. Ontario's rent control typically limits rent increases to between 2 and 3% per year. However, Above guideline rent increases enable landlords to raise rents significantly more than that. Some tenants are fighting back. Charlene Henry is leading the way for her building's rent strike. She's a tenant at 33 King Street in Toronto. Hey, Charlene, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. I really appreciate getting your perspective. Thank you for having me this morning, Dave. I do appreciate it as well. So. I think the place to start here is why. Why did you and some of your fellow tenants think a rent strike was the right solution? So it wasn't we snapped our fingers and decided to go on a rent strike. It was a journey to get to a rent strike. We've been organizing in our building for about five to six years against above guideline increases. And our building has the most approved above guideline increases in the city of Toronto with six in less than 10 years. And tenants are feeling very frustrated, helpless, and feeling like they're being got, um, being taken advantage of with the above guideline increases, which are for capital expenditure repairs. Our building has been done major renovations over the years. Most recently in the past two years, we've had balcony repairs and window repairs. And in the past, we've had a major parking garage overhaul. And that has, is where the above guideline increases came from. And folks were just frustrated. What have those kinds of increases done to the bottom line and the pocketbooks of tenants? What, what, have those, what have those numbers looked like for people? So the numbers look like families facing an increase of about 50 to $60 each year and also waiting a long time for it to be approved. So the landlord will give you a document saying that your rent is going to go up by the allowable, like this year was 2.5%. And in previous years, they've added on that 3%. And families are looking at about $50 to $60 increases every year, year after year. So it can go up to three years. So that's $50, let's just use 50. That's $150 extra over three years for folks paying more rent in a time where, as we all know, cost of living is a very big issue. Mm -hmm. A lot of people in my building work from home now due to the COVID pandemic and haven't gone back to work and are making less because they're working from home. 
So families are struggling. We have a lot of pensioners in our building as well who are on fixed incomes, who are struggling just to make ends meet, which includes rent and food. How's the strike going so far? So we've been on the strike for seven months now. We started on June 1st, and December 1st marked the seventh month that we were on the rent strike. We do have about 200 families in the building that's over 400 units on the rent strike and participating in withholding the rent. So far, the rent strike has gone well, but the only thing that's not gone well is that our landlord does refuse to meet with us as a collective, as a tenant association and as a tenant union to discuss our demands. They want to meet with tenants one-on-one -on -one and have tenants go into a repayment plan, which is something that we as a tenant union association don't want. We want a collective bargaining to happen with the landlord and to come to an agreement mutually between the two of us. How, how worried are you and some of your fellow strikers uh, about potential consequences? Well, some of the consequences that can happen are eviction. And in all honesty, folks have received the L1, which is noticed to appear at the landlord-tenant board for an eviction hearing. And about 40 or so tenants that are on rent strike have received that so far. The majority of us have not received anything. I'll be honest, some people are very afraid. And some folks like me who are, are very involved, volunteer, come out to the meetings, are not afraid because they know that it's a process. The Landlord-Tenant Board, as we know, is backed up. It takes months to hear a hearing, and we have a legal team supporting us. So we, some of us, I'll say 50% of us, feel scared and have conversations with myself as the chairperson and other people in the tenant association about how they feel. And about 50% of us know that an order has to come through for us to be evicted. So we're withholding our rent. We're not asking for free rent. And when that time comes, and if an order goes through or a negotiation happens, we will gladly pay our full rent that we owe. I suppose there's a little bit of uh, irony there for so often the uh, rental board and tenant board ends up uh, being a place where tenants can't get their case seen uh, because of the big backup there. And it seems like it's now working against uh, the landlords, ironically, uh, for, for once here. Uh, Charlene, how do you, obviously the story that you're talking about is very... It's very personal to you, but I think there's probably a lot of people across the city and across the country who can relate to your experience of significant rate increases above the approved rate for uh, minimal to, to, to low capital investments in a building. What are some suggestions or, or, or what are you thinking about more broadly in regards to, aside from your just your building, how this fits into the broader rental struggle that a lot of people are going through across the country right now? So I must admit that I think about that every day, day, because we started this struggle many years ago and thought it was just our building. Quickly learned that it was happening all over our community. That's why we have the York Southwestern Tenant Union. And then quickly realized it's not just our community, it's the city, it's the province, it's the country. So in a broader sense, I personally would love to see real deep, affordable housing for folks that need it. I don't know how that will come about. I do believe that people with lived experiences like myself and other organizers across the city and country need to be at that table and that politicians and policymakers need to listen to us because we have that lived experience. We have gone through this. 
We have tenant associations in a lot of our buildings in New York Southwestern Tenant Union, but I would love to see a movement where there's tenant associations in every type of building all across this country where people are educated and understand how the laws work in their province for and against them because they do work both ways mm. and how they can organize and feel safe in their homes because a lot of people feel insecure in their in their housing and that's the big issue housing insecurity just like food insecurity is a huge issue and if we don't as canadians rectify that what's going to happen to the next generation so that's where my mind thinks um, goes every single day on this journey that i'm on when I speak about tenant rights, it's about what's going to happen in the future. How can we, as the people who are this constituents and vote, change policy? Mm. Because the policies right now are not in favor of, of renters and tenants. And we all know that. And we realize that. That's why we're organizing. And that's why we're seeing a wave of people organizing tenants across the city, province, and country. Charlene, I empathize with you because I think about housing and housing insecurity pretty much every day as well. It's a uh, it's it's a bad situation out there. People like yourself and myself have been warning about a housing crisis for 15 or 20 years when it comes to affordability, and now we find ourselves where we sit today, which is a really really dire situation for a lot of people. The the biggest driver on inflation right now is the cost of housing. And, th and that's the truth. The biggest driver on inflation right now is the cost of housing, whether it be for renters or for owners. And until people start talking about it in those terms, this problem is going to keep circling and circling and circling. I, I totally agree with you, Dave. It is, it is a huge issue. And I'm glad to be able to speak about it and educate folks who may not have the idea of the perspective of a renter. and. We all aspire to be homeowners, but it seems so far out of our reach right now that we have to, we feel like we have to fight for what we have. Yeah. And for me, that's fighting for every tenant in my, in my building, because even if they're not on the rent strike, they're going to benefit from whatever happens at the end of this and keep advocating for people who are renting across this beautiful country who aren't aware that they could have a tenant association and it doesn't have to all be bad and aren't aware that they have certain rights because education is the key to making our society better. It's just mm. simply that. Charlene, I know you're busy. Thank you so much for taking some time to offer some insight and perspective on this story today. Uh, best of luck to you and you and your fellow tenants. Thank you so much, Dave. I do appreciate it, and you have a great day. Thank you so much. That is Charlene Henry, a tenant leading a rent strike at 33 King Street in Toronto. Coming up after the break, very, very excited to be welcoming Shane Baker back to the program. Shane's going to be talking about big life changes and the mental strain that comes along with them. So Shane will share his experience managing stress during a change in life. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The province of Quebec just does winter better. 
certainly than Ontario. Uh, I'm not going to take shots at the Prairies this morning, but Quebec knows how to create these Nordic experiences that are artistic and beautiful, like the Hotel de Glace. The famous hotel is made of ice and gets rebuilt every year. It's located just outside of Quebec City, and this year's hotel has themes with sculptures and decorations and even a couple cocktails. Again, that's Quebec for you. Montreal community reporter Shiny Saravanmuthu has more of the details. Hey, good morning, Shiny. Good morning, how are you? Shiny, I am fantastic. In your opinion, what's the best way to experience l'hôtel de glace? Honestly, it really depends. If you're like brave enough and you're willing to stay inside one of those rooms where it's made out of ice and snow, I would say spend the night if you can get accommodation because they book out really fast. And this year it starts January 4th and it runs up until March. So if you can find something that and you're brave enough to stay at the hotel, do it. I think that would be a great experience. We've been trying for years and it always books out. So we're going to try this year to see if we can stay. Um, otherwise, you can just go for the day or you can go for the night. Like they have two different sections. Mm. Um, I would say going at night is nicer because there's lights. It's it's more of an obvious. Yes, it'll be a little colder, but hey, you're surrounded by ice regardless. So, um, yeah, I would say both. And you could just you can experience the hotel. You don't have to stay there. You buy a ticket. Uh, tickets range from twenty four ninety nine for children and go up to twenty nine ninety nine for adults. And you're, you have access to the restaurant and everything, regardless if you're staying at the hotel or not. What do you think makes the experience so special? I think it's different, right? It's handmade. It's you're, you're embracing winter and you're getting to experience, like you grow up watching TV shows and you see people living in igloos and stuff. And like, you're like, okay, this can't be true. Like this can't actually be warm. And you actually get to experience it as an adult. So it's kind of cool. And it's it and it's cool that they build it every year. It's it's so. a pr- it's a pretty bougie igloo, you know. Like you're talking about yeah, a real yeah, yeah. you're talking about a real hotel here with I like know, sculptures and and lights and bars and cocktails. Yeah. I don't know. I, I shiny. I just think. Listen, every province has their own way of celebrating winter yeah. and marking it in their own way. There's something about Quebec, and I'll say even more specifically about Quebec City, whether it's the Hotel de Glace, whether it's mm-hmm. Carnival. There's something about Quebec that just embraces and I'll say it embraces every single season but in winter it would be really easy yeah. to get down in the dumps about it Quebec yeah. does not do that yeah we find ways for you to be able to spend your money and get your spirits up high <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a very good point okay if you want to learn more about the super cool Hotel de Glace you can visit valcartier.com so V-A-L-C-A-R T-I-E-R, valcartier.com, and search for Hotel de Glace. And glace is uh, ice in French, so G-L-A-C-E. And uh, if cool isn't your thing, then uh, why not warm up with a unique cafe in Montreal? Café La Chute is inviting families to enjoy some afternoon tea or coffee, all while enjoying... Some cookie decorating. So I know you're a baker, Shiny. Why are you digging this cafe? Honestly, uh, if I can skip the part of baking cookies and rolling out all that dough and skip to the decorating part, sign me up. (laughs) And honestly, this is our first activity for the holiday season with our family. So we actually went on Sunday and I loved it. 
Um, so it's great. We were all full on adults that one, and we enjoyed it. The music was surprisingly not Christmas music, but like '90s hits. So we were really enjoying it. Oh yeah. And uh, so they have different packages. So there's one package where you can get two cookies with two icings and sprinkles for eight dollars. Uh, they had another one with three cookies, three icings, and one sprinkle for $11, or another one for six cookies, four icings, and uh, two sprinkles. And that comes up to $19, and you can uh, get a hot beverage. They have hot cocoa, coffee, matcha, and they have a little pastry section as well. And so it was nice. Like we got our hot, hot beverages, we had our, our pastries, and we were decorating, and it was just very relaxing, and it was like fun we're not all creative you know and um it was fun to for me to start decorating since I'm still adjusting to my vision for my surgery let's just say I'm not the chef I used to be at the moment so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's fun it takes time and practice it takes time and yeah. practice yeah. Uh, you mentioned that the music was a little bit more of a 90s jams I find yeah. that to be uh, totally uh, enjoyable and uh, acceptable yeah. <laughs> what are some yeah. your, what are some of your other observations about the cafe maybe in regards to the the accessibility definitely very accessible there's no like crazy stairs to get up everything is one level it's very bright brightly lit i used the bathroom and i was very happy it wasn't one of those dingy bathrooms um it was like a normal format uh they're very uh very friendly uh they're very they speak english and french so it's very helpful in that sense if there's any tourists who are going there um all in all i had a really great experience and you saw so many people at different ages you saw kids decorating there was like a birthday party that was happening and they were having the time of their life and then then you have adults like us who are enjoying it you know we were a bit more quieter but we were we were enjoying it and like there's so many different cookie shapes that you can pick from so like my husband went with grinch and i was like well that's a little brave choice there uh <laughs> i stuck with the simpler you know christmas tree and a christmas sweater and, and a gift so where what part of town is it located in La Chouette? It's in Saint Denis, so it's it's downtown. Um, so we went on a Sunday, so parking was free till one p.m. So we kind of went there for eleven. So we didn't have to pay for parking, and there's still pay, parking available. And it's right around the corner from a metro as well, so it's accessible in that sense as well. Oh my gosh! Okay, it it sounds like maybe you were in the plateau, and that makes me uh, very excited. Very, very <laughs> excited. Uh, Shiny, thank you for this. Have a lovely day. I think this is thank the you. last. No, I think we're talking one more time before the yeah. holidays. So I won't exactly. wish you. I won't. I won't wish you a happy holidays just yet. <laughs> but just know, just know, the vibe is there already. Sounds great. <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> That's shiny Sarah Vanamuthu, community reporter in Montreal, Quebec. In 60 seconds, Laura Bain has a couple of different stories from the world of entertainment, including the Hollywood strikes being done and dusted. But first, gamers are getting a taste of the new Grand Theft Auto. Mike Dubusky has more in Tech Trends. GTA is just this big kind of like game where you kind of just have this virtual sandbox you can just run around and play with. IGN's Taylor Lyle says Grand Theft Auto 6 retains the open world and the controversies of earlier entries in the series. Some would call it a, a virtual crime simulator, for example. This entry adds a female protagonist. There's been a lot of controversy in the last several years, especially with GTA 5 and its portrayal of women. So the fact that we have a female protagonist kind of spearheading this next game is, is somewhat big. 
big. Lyle says that's part of the reason why GTA 6 is poised to be a big deal when it launches in 2025, both for its publisher Rockstar and for the broader gaming world. It's always like, what is Rockstar going to do that sets a new standard, a new bar for what open world and open world sandbox games should be? With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. Turning to the world of entertainment, the actor's strike is finally done and dusted. Eh, Laura Bain? Yes, officially over. So SAG after members voted 78% in favor of ratifying the deal that was tentatively reached with studios about a month ago. Um, so this makes it official. They're not going back on strike and productions can roll ahead full steam, which is uh, good news. So this deal is worth over a billion dollars in gains for SAG after members, as well as uh, certain protections against the use of artificial intelligence, which was really the biggest sticking point on this uh, on this deal. Well, I'm happy that most of the membership is happy and that uh, the wheels of production can uh, get turning in full. I know that was a, a long, long strike for a lot of people holding out for important stuff, uh, the writer's side of the strike as well. So Hollywood is a much different place at the end of 2023 than it was at the beginning of the year. Laura, forget 2023, though. In other entertainment news, there's some uh, retro opportunities for folks who like Michael Jackson. That's right. We're going back to 1967 today. So um, <laughs> Michael Jackson's first ever studio recording is getting a limited release starting tomorrow, and it's only going to be available for 48 hours. So anyone who's interested, you got to act fast if you want to purchase this. So this is of the song Big Boy, which was recorded in Chicago's wonderful studios, as I mentioned, back in 1967. Now... <sighs> I'm going to try to explain this as best as I can. So okay. it's on a Swedish it's on a Swedish based music uh music and royalty platform called Another Block. Have you ever heard of Another Block before? No, but it seems like the Swedes are really taking over the music distribution industry here between Spotify and this. Yeah, so fans can purchase sort of two versions of like of what's being released over the next uh, for 48 hours. So an open edition for 25 US dollars, which includes the recording of the song that they can only listen to through another blocks player. So it's not going to be available like on your Spotify or anything like that. Uh, images of master tapes and agreements, downloadable songs, stems, I'll explain that in a second, and a digital vinyl B-side. Or if you want to shell out $100 for a limited edition you get all that plus newly designed artwork and nine additional song stems so song stems as i best understand from my google search this morning is when you take uh like the the elements that make up a a track so audio files that make up a track like your vocal track your drum track your bass track there might be some audio files out there um who are yelling at their devices that I'm getting that wrong, but that's my that's my understanding. So no, you, did, you actually did a really you did a really good job there. Uh, sometimes with the royalty free music that we play on the show, uh, coming in in and out of breaks, oftentimes we have the choice of picking either entire songs or just elements of stem that might take out the trombone or might take out the guitar or take out the vocals. So you defined that quite well in terms of explaining it to a layman. That was really well done. And don't worry about the audio files; they've they've already tuned out hours ago. Right. Yes, I definitely have a layman. So. <laughs> um, so another block CEO. And, you know, if folks are really interested in this, it's sort of like the whole non-fungible token thing. I would encourage them to go on the website because I'm not going to be able to fully explain it. But they say that they're experimenting with the concept of digital ownership and that they hope to replicate the feeling of owning a vinyl record. Mm. Uh, 
I don't mm. know. So that's kind of my question for you. What do you think? Can the experience of owning a physical recording be digitally replicated? <sighs> I I don't think so. I, I am someone who in the world of streaming has chosen to buy digital copies of things, maybe movies that I really like that, that I don't want to have to find what streamer it popped on just to go watch a movie that I like. So I, I, it, you can replicate ownership. I don't think you can replicate the feeling, especially when it comes to something like music. There's a smell that wafts off a new CD, and there's where I date myself, CD. There's a feeling of the first time you slide a CD into a CD player. There's something about sliding a vinyl outside of its sleeve and the pop as you put the needle of the record player on. I, I, I just don't think that a digital collection offers you the same sensory experience. I also think that for collectors, if they can't show it off on their shelf, what's the point? Yeah, I, I think I'm not there as myself as well. If I really want access to something, like if I was just a super fan and I wanted to hear this track, or same thing, if there's a movie that I want to watch that's not available... I will pay for access to that, but it doesn't really excite me to have digital ownership of something. I feel like physical objects just kind of have this essence that can't be replicated. As you mentioned, the, you know, the smell of them. I have like some vinyl records and sometimes there's these little, you know, booklets in them or, or artwork. But, um, you know, I did think about an accessibility angle and that would be interesting to learn more about. But as far as the whole aspect of digital ownership as an investment, yeah, I guess if somebody, I I could maybe get behind that, but it feels about as exciting to me as like dealing with understanding my, <laughs> you know, mutual funds and things like that, which I, I tend to just sort of gloss over. Yeah, some collectors also, the audiophiles are yelling at us and collectors might be yelling at us, but being a collector is not truly an investment. Yes, you can make some money off your collections, uh, comic books, art, CDs. A friend of mine collects classic hip hop CDs and it sold a few of them for like thousands of dollars. So like, like th there is money to be made here, but I think really and truly the reason why he collects classic hip hop CDs is not for the money. He collects them because he loves the thrill of finding the CD and putting it as part of his collection. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv, also in audio form at amiplus.ca. I'm Dave Brown. It is Wednesday, December the 6th, 2023. Coming up in the second hour of the show, the season for post-secondary applications is here. Elizabeth Moeller will give you some advice on what to do to make your applications sparkle and shine. And just before we talk a little, little bit about accessibility and urban design, I did say that I would give you the update on the Bank of Canada interest rate, and as expected, the Bank of Canada holding the interest rate steady. That's their last announcement of the year, so that's where 2023 comes to an end in regards to interest rate conversations. I assure you, it will come up again. 
Okay, let's turn to accessibility and disability. New research shows that several Canadian cities are not accessible. 60% of public places in Calgary, Vancouver and Ottawa presented some kind of accessibility barrier to people with disabilities. The Mapping Our Cities for All project was led by the University of Calgary. Dr. Victoria Fast is an associate professor at U of C. Hey, good morning, Professor Fast. Nice to chat with you this morning. Good morning, Dave. Happy to be chatting with you too. So I'm a little bit of a nerd. Let's start with your <laughs> let's start with your methodology. What kind of accessibility barriers were you looking for? Uh, well, we when we rated the cities, we rated them according to uh, different um, uh, variables, including so there's the overall rating, and that's one that made it in the news. So accessible, partially accessible, or inaccessible. Uh, but then we also looked at tags, descriptions, and photos. But what's most unique about this methodology is that it really embraced nothing about us without us. And uh, we hired over 30 mappers across the country, many of them living with permanent disabilities, uh, and they were our mappers. They were our eyes and ears and wheels on the ground. Yeah, go a little bit deeper into the folks that you had collaborate on here in regards to the collection of the data. Well, I, I guess I should address uh, first access now. It's of course, the, yeah. Toronto that crowdsources accessibility uh, worldwide, and we just said, hey, we need we need more research. We need to use this data as a benchmark to understand how accessible our cities are. Uh, and uh, the uh, we have the Accessible Canada Act. It said Canada will be barrier-free by 2040, but what's that benchmark? How accessible are we even? So let's dig into the data a little bit here, because like you said, the, the top line number, 60% of the cities being inaccessible or partially inaccessible, like that is a, that's a jarring, jarring number. But I'm curious about what were some of the common barriers that kept popping up across Calgary, Vancouver, and Ottawa? Uh, yeah, so common barriers, the uh, main thing is the door, you know, can you get in the door, it uh, does, uh, can somebody independently access that business, so uh, is there a stair to get in or multiple stairs uh, is, is the most obvious one, uh, but also is there an automatic door button, can people get into the business independently if they're not able to physically open the door themselves. Uh, and then it went a lot deeper than that. We were looking at some of the tags that we looked at were, uh, were there braille options? Uh, was there a sign language tag indicating that they had somebody who, uh, uh, that an interpreter could be available by request? Uh, so a few businesses have those, and I think it's important to emphasize and share information on those ones that do. How did how did you and some of the researchers develop a sample size here? What what was the methodology in determining what kind of public places you were looking for? They were all public facing businesses uh, at ground floor, so we weren't going into high rises. It was just what was ever on the ground floor there. Uh, and then we were looking based on uh, a census term from Census Canada or ge a census geography called dissemination areas. And so that is how Census Canada uh, or St Statistics Canada collects data and um, uh, and aggregates them to a particular unit. So you're not giving away individual information. So we took those census units of dissemination areas, mapped out which ones had the highest proportion of consumer businesses, uh, and then we hit the ground and started mapping. 
I, I know that, again, the top-line data here shows some pretty jarring uh, results and maybe results that people with disabilities wouldn't be all that surprised by. As someone myself who has a disability, uh, you encounter inaccessibility in a lot of places uh, throughout your day-to-day -day life. But I'm curious about any positive observations. Were there any spaces or areas or features where these public spaces were actually showing some positive results or positive trends? Absolutely. Uh, so we did some rural mapping uh, just to get a non-city perspective. So we, uh, our main mapping was in Vancouver, Calgary, and Ottawa, and then we mapped 17 rural municipalities uh, around Alberta. And from those, libraries stood out as a, a leader in accessibility. A lot of them were accessible to get in. A lot of them had many of those tags that we were looking for, uh, whether it was you know high contrast, had braille options, was a scent-free space, had tactile surfaces. Uh, and so that was really great. And another one was uh, a major headline news in Calgary happening is um, that Calgary was actually rated as only 35, only 35% of buildings were rated as fully accessible. This is compared to 48% of Vancouver and 53% of Ottawa, although minor caveat that the Ottawa sample was uh, a little bit smaller. Uh, but there's a new community in Calgary that's just been built called University District. It's close to the university. It used to be a field, and now it's a thriving urban area. And there was some really good accessibility there. It was built probably 2020 to 2023 still kind of ongoing and there is some good accessibility so I think we're doing better it's just we're stuck with some of this outdated legacy and outdated infrastructure uh, and maps matter maps matter in mediating that information for people. Also, when you have those cases, those positive uh, case studies that people can look at, that creates templates moving forward, right? Because cities are not static. They're always developing and growing. And when you can point to an area where, hey, they're doing this really, really well through their rebuild or through their retrofit, that can be a template for other cities and other developers. Absolutely. Uh, it's a great template, and that's exactly why we initiated this. We needed a benchmark. If we're going to be barrier-free by 2040, how accessible are we and what progress are we making toward that? Yeah, you need you need the information. You need to know the problem that you're dealing with in tangible terms before you start figuring out solutions. Along those lines, what does this research say more broadly about efforts to enact the goals of the Accessible Canada Act? But of course, it's not just uh, Canada. There are plenty of provinces who are on their own journey right now with provincial accessibility legislation. Gosh, I'd love to see some provincial accessibility legislation in Alberta. Currently, it's just mm. the human rights act or code uh not 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 a lawyer so not sure but uh, i think that provincial jurisdiction that pro or provincial um legislation is really going to matter uh, because it has more teeth. So the Accessible Canada Act is, is uh, governs federal things under federal jurisdiction, where our accessibility is built and governed uh, in our provinces and our municipalities. So I think some of those laws there really matter. But what really matters to me for the Accessible Canada Act is that uh, we are prioritizing accessibility. We are saying this is a policy precedent and that we are going to become a more accessible country. And so I think uh, despite the criticism that the legislation has no teeth, that we are making, we're setting accessibility and access as a priority. What kind of plans do you have to expand this research, maybe other, other major cities? 
we want to map the rest of the world. We want to map everything. <laughs> uh, maps really are that, uh, you know, knowledge that people could use to make more informed decisions about where they want to spend their dollars. And that really facilitates that. Uh, so there are some great resources being developed. Uh, but in terms of developing this research, it's just a matter of getting more funding and getting more mappers on the ground. I, I know I read the report at accessnow.com yesterday. It was super, super cool to read the executive summary and then dive a little bit deeper into the data, but you may have just tipped the hand a little bit, Dr. Fast. What kind of opportunities are there and how can folks at home get involved in this project, whether it be more broadly or very specifically? Yeah, Access Now is a live and living data set. So all of this data is available at accessnow.com. Uh, and uh, so you can go on and check out their map and check out businesses. So if you're a business owner, check out to see if your business has been mapped. Uh, and if it hasn't, add your rating. If it has uh, and it's inaccessible, work toward that. There were some instances an example where a business had a big planter at the front door blocking the accessible door button. And so what would otherwise be rated as inaccessible uh, was deemed, uh, or uh, it would otherwise been rated as accessible was deemed inaccessible. Uh, so some of the fixes are pretty easy, so pay attention. Dr. Fast, thank you so much for taking a little bit of time today to talk about the research. Keep up all this interesting work and hopefully we get a chance to uh, check in again down the road with uh, better results to report next time. Yeah, here's hoping. Great chatting with you. <laughs> That's Dr. Victoria Fast, an associate professor at the University of Calgary. To learn more about the project and read the initial report, you can visit accessnow.com. That's accessnow.com. Coming up after the break, Vancouver was the centre of the Canadian sports universe last night. Canadian soccer superstar Christine Sinclair played her last international game. And... The Hughes brothers, Jack, Luke, and Quinn got together on the ice when the Vancouver Canucks and New Jersey Devils took on each other. So lots to talk about in the world of sports with Brock Richardson after two minutes. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv, turning to the world of sports in just a minute to talk about Canadian soccer superstar Christine Sinclair and her last international game last night. But first, it's the regional news update. Starting in British Columbia, BC's health minister is happy with the province's efforts to recruit more nurses. The provincial government says the number of foreign educated nurses registered in BC this year is more than double the number who registered last year. Health Minister Adrian Dix says the work will continue. We've got to recruit, we've got to recruit, we've got to recruit from everywhere outside of British Columbia. Break down some of those barriers for people who are skilled to work in our system but haven't been able to work and also to be able to recruit from other jurisdictions, healthcare workers, doctors, nurses, healthcare workers, health sciences professionals who want to come and work in British Columbia. 
The province will spend more than a billion dollars on the recruiting strategy. Over to the prairies, the United Nurses of Alberta says the province has threatened to cut and contract out nursing jobs. The union's David Harrigan says he doubts the province actually has wiggle room to cut those jobs in an already struggling system. A four-year contract expires in the spring. Health Minister Adriana Lagrange says there will be changes, but not necessarily job losses. We know how valuable our nurses are. We know how valuable our front line is. Mr. Speaker, this free focusing is all about adding value and adding more of those frontline uh, care professionals to improve our health care system. And over to Atlantic Canada, a New Brunswick Municipal Council has declared a state of emergency citing unprecedented rates of homelessness and the death of an unhoused resident. The state of emergency declaration by the Municipal District of St. Stephen takes specific aim at the provincial government. It says the government has failed in its duties to house and care for the citizens of St. Stephen's. The declaration says there are roughly 70 homeless people in the town and it calls on Premier Blaine Higgs to use part of the province's budget surplus to fund a solution. That's your look at the regional news. Here comes Brock Richardson for a sports chat. Starting with women's soccer, Canada's Christine Sinclair called time on her international soccer career with a 1-0 win over Australia in Vancouver last night. Canada coach Bev Priestman says it was a perfect international send-off for Sinclair, Sophie Schmidt and Erin McLeod. I've got to say, Canada Soccer, everybody involved in putting it together, I, I don't think you could do any more to, to send them off. So I think we give some absolute legends an unbelievable send-off, both internally but even the fans to enjoy their moments and see those players, you know, emotional with the friends and family, and then the win on the pitch obviously helps. Sinclair has a record 190 international goals. Australia coach Tony Gustafsson was asked if anyone will ever break that record. No. <laughs> I mean, it's just amazing what she's done. The m amount of games and amount of goals she scored, um, I think that's a record that's going to stand, uh, if not forever, at least for a very, 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 very long time. Brock, there is a lot to remember about the legacy of Christine Sinclair after over 20 years of action on the pitch with the Canadian women's soccer team. It's a retirement that is unsurprising, but still very emotional last night and this morning. Yeah, it, it was. Um, it was one of the few things that I will get up early in the morning and watch it on record as I didn't feel inclined to stay up till like midnight last night, but I did record it and watch it. And I have to say that it was probably as perfect as perfect can be. I think that first of all, when you have over 48,000 uh, people, just over 48,000 people uh, come out to support this and to say, thank you to Christine Sinclair. I think this is really, really great. I think this shows what she's done for the sport. But I would say, Dave, and maybe this is my little bit of nitpicking, I wish that she finished the last 60 minutes of the game. The only reason is 
I wish that she was able to walk off the field with her team in the sense of when the game was over, that's when she got her send off. I know she walked away and got her standing ovation and all that, but it just, it's, it would have felt even better to me if she walked off at the end of the game with the team at the final whistle went. That's my only level of, uh, of nitpicking on this, 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 night but, so what you're yeah. ref- what you're referring to is that she was subbed out too early in the game and didn't didn't finish the game right maybe be subbed in at halftime versus subbed out in the first half yeah and i i mean i understand the fact of why you wanted her to start the game i i get all of that but i just think that the picture would have been just complete if you'd said to her play the last 60 minutes of the game if you knew going into this look she's only going to play an hour of the game which seemed by the commentary it seemed that that's what what was going to be the thing then let her play the last 60 minutes versus the first one but that's literally my only uh nitpick of last night i mean look at the impact dave i mean they they changed bc place to christine sinclair place uh for one night last night that just shows you the impact that this woman has had on the game and will continue to have for a long time and and the thing that i respect mightily is she's been doing this tour of friendly games for a little bit now even the other teams she's playing no respect what she's done and that's the thing that i think she's gonna look and say not only have i had an impact in canada but i've had an impact around the world and i think that was evident last night uh when australia respected it as well but they certainly didn't want to see her get a goal either and they they played well enough so that she didn't but i think all in all a pretty good night when you look at the last decade of the Canadian women's soccer program and you talk about not just Christine Sinclair, but Sophie Schmidt and Erin McLeod, who also walked away last night, pretty much from that Olympics in 2012 in London, where they were a breath away, inches away from beating the American team and moving on to a gold medal. From that moment forward, Canadian women's soccer has been on the map as an elite program in the world. And despite a couple of uh, poor showings at World Cups, it's kind of irrelevant because what that golden generation did for the sport has quite literally created a knock-on effect for what's going to be the next great generation of Canadian women's soccer. And that's when you start talking about trailblazers. You start talking about the people who dominated the sport for a little more than a decade, but have now created an environment where financially and structurally at the grassroots and the elite level, that the the intention is for Canadian women's soccer to be amazing for decades to come. And, and it's not fair just to give that to Christine Sinclair. You have to give Sophie Schmidt and Aaron McLeod their moment as well. But what last night felt like was a significant celebration of the history while also passing the torch to the next generation. Yeah, and I think the other thing, one of the things that was asked by the TSN reporter who interviewed Christine right after the game is, what does this mean to you? And and she said, it means everything to me. It means the world. I, you know, I've had a hand in getting the team where they are, and, I, and I've done this. And the reporter followed up by saying, do you recognize that there's not just hundreds of Christine Sinclair jerseys in here? There's thousands of girls who are, are wearing your jersey and representing. And she said... I've accomplished everything I want to accomplish here on the international stage, and I've left it in a in a position where it's going to succeed. And I think the thing that we're all going to look back on is the fact that she stuck around to qualify the country for the Olympic Games. And I think that 
is admirable in itself and shows you the type of person yeah. Christine Sinclair really, really, truly is. Because she could have hung it up, Dave, and, and everybody could have said, we understand, we respect it. But no, she stuck in and wanted the team to qualify. And I think part of that is due to, you know, a bad World Cup that took place. But it's also just her character and who she is and what she represents. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's pivot to uh, hockey for a moment here, Brock, because Vancouver was also the center of the hockey universe last night. The New Jersey Devils possessed the Vancouver Canucks 6-5. to five. The game, not the story. The story is that the Hughes brothers all played in the same NHL game last night on the same ice service. So Quinn plays for the Vancouver Canucks. He's a defenseman. Jack is a forward for the New Jersey Devils. And Luke is a rookie defenseman for the Devils. They all made their way into the league over the last couple of years. And it's the first time the three of them have all shared the ice together in a pro game. Quinn Hughes thinks it's pretty cool to share this moment with his brothers. I don't know, man. It's a lot of... A lot of hard work, uh, definitely a little bit of luck along the way. You know, three kids is, you know, for one kid to get to the NHL, it's really hard. So for three for three in one family to, you know, all be playing in one game tonight, that's really special and um, just, you know, really exciting. I think we should have a lot of fun. You know, Brock, it's one thing when it's just a pair of kachucks on the ice, when Brady and Matthew get together, when the Sens and the Panthers play. But three brothers? Three brothers? Like, that's cool stuff. I'm sorry. I know it's like kind of a cliche media storyline last night and this morning, but I think it's cool. I think that's awesome that a family gets to share that moment together. Hey, you know what, Dave? The thing that I was thinking about this morning as we were going to chat about this is you got to think of the parents and the families and the friends who are all sitting going, is this really happening? Like, this is really a thing. And I, and I think, yeah, it's a media story, but I, I share your sentiments. This is really cool. This is something that I don't know that anyone would have said might have happened because you never know, knock on wood, when injuries might have yeah, taken yeah. place. Like, there's so many external factors that would prevent this from happening. So the fact that it happened... And like you said early on in this conversation, the, the game, the score was irrelevant. It was just the cool sort of situation of what this meant. And the fact that it also happened in Vancouver on another historic night that was happening, you know, a feet two down blocks the road. Away. Two blocks it, away. It, you know, like it just, it all really went together. That The, the storylines were just impeccable if you were in, in Vancouver and a good night for Vancouver and really cool. And I, uh, I hope to see that again where we see all the Hughes brothers play again. But it's just so crazy how this happened. Yeah. So good on the family. And I hope they had a few, uh, as my father would call them, wobbly pops to <laughs> celebrate. Yeah, you, you know, it's, uh, it, it was only missing one thing to make the storyline more magical because Jack Hughes scored a goal. Luke Hughes scored a goal. It would have been fantastic if Quinn could have put one in there too for a Hughes Brothers hat trick. But I guess a boy can continue to dream. You know, Brock, what's going to be really interesting, I know it just got confirmed yesterday about the NHL International World Cup or World Series or whatever they're going to call it in 2025 that's only going to feature four teams because, again, hockey's not a real sport or a real league, but I'm going to put that aside for a second. Team USA is probably going to feature all three Hughes brothers and both Kachuk brothers. There's going to be a lot of uh, of similar-looking jerseys on that ice when Team USA hits the ice in 2025. Yeah, I mean, uh, the thing you were saying when the one brother didn't score, I'm thinking, can you imagine the ribbing that took place? Oh, my gosh. 
family text messaging where where was your goal there boss last night you know like you you didn't follow the chain of you were supposed to score too right but uh, you know that's that's the fun you would have as siblings and the the, the competitive nature of like hey i i want to i want to be up at your level so yeah there's there's a lot going on and I'm excited for 2025 for the World Cup or whatever they're whatever, calling it. Whatever, whatever, I'm, a, I'm a little disappointed. It. There's only four four teams, but hey, this is the NHL and this is Gary. Yeah, Bevin. why why would they ever do anything <laughs> right? Why would they ever do anything right and give us what we want or you know like showcase incredible German hockey players like Leon Dreisaitl or Moritz Sider? No, no, no. We can't have that. We can't have that. We just and because we don't want to include Russia in the tournament, that therefore we must not have a tournament with any yeah. integrity. Okay, I'll stop. I'll stop. I'll stop. Yeah. Brock. Thank you for this. Have a great day. Thank you. Have a good day. That's as well. Brock Richardson at the AMI Sports Desk. I will ta- stop taking swipes at the NHL uh, at some point. I promise. Coming up next, the season for post-secondary applications is here. Elizabeth Moeller will give you some advice on what you can do to make your application stand above the rest. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI TV. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Students are preparing their college and university applications. Don't be a Dave Brown. Don't be procrastinating. There is an art to making your application shine. Elizabeth Moeller is an academic, and Elizabeth has some advice on what you can do to make your work stand out. Elizabeth is also the founder of EM Disability Consulting. Hey, good morning, Elizabeth. Good Wednesday morning, Dave. Happy first week of December. Happy first week of December. So, Elizabeth, you've been in the academic world for a while. No need yes, to tell us how many years. Longer than I can count. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but if, if you had to guess, this is where I am going to make you count. How many applications would you say you filled out? Between applying to post-secondary scholarships, financial aid, and work related to, to academic education, I would say probably in the hundreds. Like a lot, a lot. Oh boy, oh boy. A lot of years, a lot of years. (laughs) I I remember when I applied to go to the University of McGill, it was still on paper and pen. You still Mm -hmm. dropped off an actual package. 10 years later, Algonquin College in Ontario, a little bit more online, but there was still a lot of paper and pen. How would you say the process has changed over the years? Yeah, you know what? Definitely, I remember when I applied to Laurier, it was paper and pen, and then Western was partly online in uh, 2009, but quite a bit of paper as well. But aside from that, I would say the types of questions that we're asking, I'm also on a committee that reviews applications for a scholarship um, and as well as um, graduate program. But the types of questions are changing. So we're, we're moving away from just grades, although grades are so super, super important to looking at who you are as a whole person. So who is Dave as a whole person? So we're wanting to know about your background. We're wanting to hear your story because what we're looking for is fit in the program, not just, you know, academically, but how are you going to contribute sort of to the fabric of the university or the college, um, you know, in a more way, a way that's well-rounded, whether that be getting involved on campus, et cetera. Um, I would say the, uh, the other way that it's really changed over, over the years 
is thinking about um, you know, what are what are some of those skills beyond the classroom that you bring? So questions are really asking about sometimes problem solving or um, really asking you to think about your work experience and how that relates to how you might excel in a program, mm. especially in the professional programs. The last thing I would say, and this is really more for professional programs, is testing, right? So we have the CASPER test that people going into the OTPT world would take. So that testing kind of helps, again, just determine best fit for the program. It doesn't mean that you wouldn't make a good X if you don't do well in the test, but it really helps to sort of streamline um, who is the best fit for the program. So those are the ways I'd say that it's changed. Elizabeth, I'm so glad that at 19 years old, McGill was not asking me what kind of well-rounded person I was because the answer would have been <laughs> the only round part are my triceps from all the bench pressing. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that means you work out, so that's hard to be well-rounded. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> hey, Elizabeth, a few weeks ago, you were struck by a segment that Don Dickinson did uh, for the McLean's Magazine preview, where she talked about people who make a career as post-secondary application coaches. As someone who lives in that world, that universe, how do you feel about those kinds of services and professions? Yeah, I would say proceed with caution. So one of the, the taglines that was mentioned in that segment was help with applications. So I want to know more as a, a parent potentially or an applicant or an administrator reviewing an application, what does help look like? Is help kind of coaching you in the right direction, perhaps helping you figure out some schools that might be really good fit for you based on your interest, um, helping you sort of tailor your CV and curricular activities and extracurricular activities, or does help mean actually crafting it? And sometimes that isn't always clear. Um, and sometimes what we're seeing too is these wonderful applications that come in and then somebody gets in their program and they're struggling with the writing. So we're, we're asking those questions to figure out what that help look like. Um, now I have several friends in the arts and one of the things that's really challenging if you're going into like theater or dance is you're applying to thinking about looking at tons of schools, right? And it's very competitive. So an application coach might help you sort of narrow that down and think about where your best fit is. But I would say proceed with caution. And I would say really as a, as a parent, perhaps who's, who's looking into these services, do your research. Like what is the actual success rate of these coaches? What qualifications do they have? Are they educators? themselves? Mm. What is their background in terms of writing, in terms of helping people, um, in terms of like a life coaching or a guidance perspective? I also think you really want to even for the first session, sit in with the person, the, the child or the, the person that you're providing, um, if you're a parent providing support to, just to kind of see what's going on in there. Like, do these coaches have stakes in certain universities? I don't know. But mm. those are the questions I would be asking as a guardian or parent who's potentially putting out thousands of dollars. I spoke to an applicant who told me their parent put out ten thousand dollars oh my gosh coaches. oh my so gosh so that's that's a lot of money um so you just want to i think proceed with caution i i would say yellow amber light for me well forgive me if if i'm taking this to an absurd realm or absurd region that doesn't make any sense at all again i don't run in these academic circles anymore i, I but i'm curious what academics might think in regards to academic integrity of a service mm. like this like you said the difference yeah. between crafting 
and preparing somebody or yes. helping versus crafting, helping versus doing. And especially when you add the financial component to it, I wonder what that might say more broadly about concerns around academic integrity and maybe also yes. just like the general inclusion of people from uh, more marginalized backgrounds being able to get into universities um, mm -hmm. at, at, or, or being excluded at the expense of individuals who are paying 10 grand to make their application shine. Yeah, it's, those are all really good points. I do have concerns about the academic integrity. Not to say that I, I think coaching is a bad thing. In fact, quite the opposite. Um, but at your... At at your school, if you're in high school or at your child's school, they have guidance counselors. Now, guidance counselors we we know are overworked, and so sometimes people will use these coaches to help fill those gaps. But I think I have concerns about, for sure, like whether people who can't afford this are getting in. Um, but I also, from an academic integrity perspective, I, I want more clarity on what the process is. Like I want I want to be able to really see clearly. This is the kind of assessment we do to find out, you know, where you might be best suited to go to post secondary or if post-secondary is a, a fit, like maybe we need to start there. And right, then also right. thinking about, you know, like then thinking about like, here are the services we offer and here's how we help your, your child or you to become successful and coach yourself. So I, I want to see more transparency and I get really concerned when I hear things like, um, you know, X number of people have gone to the school who have used this service. Um, and I worry as somebody that's on the other side as a TA that people, People are, are getting a lot of support with that writing piece and then coming in and it's not fair to them because then they're not prepared for the writing that's expected, especially at a graduate level. Right, right, absolutely. Okay, Elizabeth, not everybody's got the uh, 10 grand to pay for a coach, but they no. do have the time to listen to you right now. So let's <laughs> okay. say someone's in the midst of putting together a application for university or college or a scholarship, like whatever, whatever that might be. What's some advice that you have, starting with the do's, maybe focusing on the do's? The do's, okay. Um, you know, I think especially for, um, well, for all, scholarships, applications, tell your story, be authentic, where it's appropriate. But I love, I've read scholarship applications for uh, NEEDS, the National Educational Association of Disabled Students for years, and I love when people tell a good story and talk about why they're a fit based on their life experience, not just listing off activities, but mm -hmm. really being bringing your whole self to the table, where, again, where it's appropriate. I also think it's really important to read the question. So if I'm asking you to tell me about a barrier oh. you experienced and how you, Dave Brown, navigated that barrier and came up with a solution, you got you to gotta answer the whole question. So sometimes people will answer half or they'll answer what I think perhaps they think the question's asking, but I always put it aside for a day or two and come back and read it and go, is this my best work? Did I answer this question? Am I actually getting at what, if I was an applicant reviewer, what would I think? Um, some don'ts, especially for scholarships, don't put all your eggs in one basket. There are There is tons of money out there to be given away. So don't just apply for the big ones, although the needs and AMI scholarship is a great opportunity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, absolutely, a little plug there, a little plug there. But there's lots of small scholarships, your Lions Clubs, your Rotary Clubs, um, churches. There are so many out there. So don't hesitate to, to really reach out um, and, and cast that wide, 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 wide net. I would also say don't ever for a scholarship. Now, applications are different for, for, for a scholarship. You should not be in the application stage giving away banking information or paying up front, not for a scholarship. Okay. Uh, different for applications, but we just really want to be mindful of that. If it's too good to be true, it probably is. 
Um, and I, I would say, this sounds cliche, but you know, don't leave things to the last minute. I had a spreadsheet <laughs> when I was applying to my PhD with the deadlines, and then I would put them in my calendar. And then when I needed drafts to be sent to my supervisor, um, and references are really big one. Ask well in advance. Don't be afraid of getting a no back. It could just be that person doesn't think they're the best fit, but don't ever put someone on an application that you haven't sort of had that chit chat mm -hmm. with about the reference process, right? Oh, so I'm yeah. not going to be putting Dave Brown down unless I've had a chat with Dave Brown. So. <laughs> Hello, uh, do you know Elizabeth Moeller? No, I've never met Elizabeth no, Moeller. I know nothing We're not about on TV her. Ever. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Elizabeth, speaking of being on TV, it's a triple dose of you this week, today, tomorrow, and Friday. So talking to you again so tomorrow, but more from the academic world, this time about students around finals, final papers, final exams, and how to manage some stress. So more helpful advice with Elizabeth tomorrow. Elizabeth, have a wonderful day. Talk to you, you in too, less than 24 hours. You bet. Talk to you then. That's Elizabeth Moeller, the founder of EM Disability Consulting. Coming up after the break, what do you think the most searched thing was or subject was this year on Wikipedia? Alex Smythe will have the answer and bring it to the round table with Nazreen and Ramya. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. This afternoon at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, Kelly and Ramya hit the airwaves. Ramya Amuthan is the co-host of that show and hits the airwaves right now with a preview. Hey, good morning, Ramya. Morning, Dave. Happy Wednesday. Yeah, we are talking to Mark Phoenix on the buzz. What are you calling it again? The Fire with Phoenix? Uh, As, we're for uh, Fire with Phoenix. Fire Stories yes, of I Phoenix. I like it. I like it. This is, of course, the uh, current replacement of the buzz with Bill. And one of the stories is about a an escaped kangaroo that punched a police officer in the face. <laughs> don't know who won that battle, but we will find out. Also, community reporter Vic Pereira is highlighting Braille greeting cards that we can now get a hold of in Winnipeg, Manitoba. And as we wind up the year, Ryan Chin, our financial advisor and yours, is going to talk about why we need to keep our finances, finances in check with the help of a financial advisor. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing branding in real time here. What about Phoenix's fire stories as opposed to oh, fire like stories too. with Phoenix? Rolls flip off the tongue a little. a little bit better. Yeah, yeah. sometimes in broadcasting, you got to flip it a little bit. So Phoenix's now, fire there, stories. Is there a synonym for stories that starts with F? Uh, fables? fables? Phoenix, Phoenix's Jinx? fire fables? Yeah, maybe. I mean, it's, it's, right. it's, not, it's not a P like per se, but it's, it's the sound. It's, it's yeah. Yeah, sound, which we have, yeah, I've got to be careful mm -hmm. with that one, though, because, you know, mm -hmm. it's, uh, every now and then. Uh, yes, excellent. Uh, Ramya, stay right there, because Alex Smythe also has a roundtable topic for here. Alex, the year-in-review stories are out, and this one has to do with Wikipedia. Yeah, Dave, that's right. So the Wikipedia top searches of the year has been released, and Mike Kempen shares the top five. 
The Wikimedia Foundation, the nonprofit behind the free publicly edited online encyclopedia, says English Wikipedia has had more than 84 billion views this year. And the most popular article has been about ChatGPT. Number two this year has been the annual list of deaths, which always sees high traffic. Individual entries for notable people who died this year, such as Lisa Marie Presley and Matthew Perry, also have done well. The 2023 Cricket World Cup is in third place. The Indian Premier League is number four, while the Oppenheimer film rounds out the top five. I'm Mike Hempen. So in, in my opinion, that's a pretty clear snapshot of 2023 <laughs> in a nutshell. You know, you have people, a uh, list of deaths, you've got chat GPT, you got Oppenheimer in there, and you got a bit of sports. So to well, me, cricket, that kind of... Cricket, I mean, in, people, cricket exactly. people who speak English love cricket, apparently. <laughs> exactly. So um, I, this got me thinking about Wikipedia more in general. So I wanted to find out from from both of you and Ramya, we'll start with you on this. Like, how often do you use Wikipedia in your daily life? I uh, don't use Wikipedia. I skip over Wikipedia when it comes up as the part of the Google searches, even if it's top three. And the reason why is I'm very skeptical of Wikipedia as a source, because obviously it's not a source. It's just, you know, you edit, you do whatever you want with it. So you're supposed to be not lazy. And if you're going through Wikipedia, click the actual links and check out the sources, which I'm not doing. So um, I'm even more lazy than that. And I just go straight to ChatGPT nowadays. Until it says, like, sorry, my, um, what does it say? Like, uh, I only have information up until my update in 2021 or 2022. So <laughs> I don't even pay for that version. It's it's pretty bad, my um, sourcing and citing. But anyway, I don't use Wikipedia. I, I, like, <laughs> Ru- I like Rumia's old school thoughts on Wikipedia, like old school university professors who are like, no, Wikipedia is <laughs> not legit. Even, it's true, but, though. But you, but you can scroll down to the bottom of a Wikipedia entry and get That's all work. these great primary articles. So, yeah, like I agree with the professors, but I won't put in the work to go through the articles. <laughs> Instead, I'll just find the articles straight on Google. <laughs> uh, Alex, what about you? You find yourself using Wikipedia from time to time? Yeah, I do, you know, because I, I find it's a great um, introductory source. If, if I'm just looking up something basic that I'm not really concerned, you know, if I need to go into finite detail or really sourcing something for research or whatnot, if it's just something general like, oh, something about a celebrity or a location or this or that, Fair. something quite basic and broad, yeah, it serves the purpose quite well. And as you say, if, if you read something and it's cited and it's like, hmm, I'm, I don't know about this, you can go and click on the link and take you to a another site i i but it's it's funny that uh, hearing uh Ramya talk about using chat gpt even though that the information is it's stopped from 2021 so you, you you're already dated the information and you stopped from having new information inputted whereas wikipedia is constantly evolving being updated and i think there's such a community around wikipedia that even if there's something that's not factually correct, it does get corrected far quicker than, you know, it was 10, 15 years ago when it first kind of started to appear on uh, people's radars. Ramya, is it because you have a general distrust of the common public, of the general public, the great unwashed, the unwashed <sighs> masses? I just don't want to take in the information as is, as it if it's supposed to be true and then find out later that I shouldn't have trusted Wikipedia. So before going down that road, I'd rather put all my trust into all the TikTok opinions and stuff. You know, it's oh much faster. Oh my gosh. 
<laughs> I know. I know. It's honestly, it's a lose-lose situation, Dave. My, I don't have any advice on this front, but I'm just saying, like, Wikipedia feels like you're putting a lot of work into the reading of the source and then potentially having to go double-check the sources with all these other sources, and it's, it, it, yeah, it's a lot of work. Alex, what, what's your level of trust for the general, the general public, the great unwashed, the unwashed masses? You know, I, I think in the context of like a Wikipedia, it's, it's much more than just like a Reddit, like message board or discussion or things like that, just because I, I feel like with Wikipedia, there's people who will actually go and try to update and provide correct information. And I, I think there's, there is that kind of balance to it, whereas if, as Ramya says, oh, a TikTok video. Yeah, well, there's no one going in and citing or correcting <laughs> that video itself. It's just out there without context, whereas within a Wikipedia page, the context is given, the citations are given, or corrections are made. So it's on one place that you're not trying to kind of sort through different opinions or views within a single discussion point. You know, it, it's kind of happening within the page itself. You don't have to do that much digging for the correction of it. But once you get into the broader internet scope, yeah, that's when it gets murky. I, <laughs> I, I've learned to respect Wikipedia a lot more than it, when it originally came oh. out. Because I remember those days. It was it was a lawless wasteland of ideas and opinions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the curation side of Wikipedia has changed a little bit here. Okay, let's take the last couple minutes of the show today to reflect on some happenings around uh, AMI. The holiday party is today. Alex, as soon as the show's over, you're hopping on the GO train, eh? Making your way to uh, North York, North York, Ontario. Well, not the GO train, Dave, just because if I take the GO train in public transit, I won't, I'll arrive after the, the holiday party okay. is done. So <laughs> I'm hopping into a car to make sure I get there on time. I got to switch out my, my sweater into something a bit more festive. But yes, I'll, I'm going to be there. Ramya, you're hosting the show at 2 o'clock. I hope there's not too much uh, red wine in your future here during the course of the uh. holiday party. There's never red wine in my future. It's only white wine. And okay. also, uh, <laughs> and also, yeah, we'll save a bit of the that kind of fun for after the show, Dave, because I don't think you want a Wednesday show with me after some white I mean, wine. I mean, I, I, Maybe I, a mean, Friday I, mean I mean, I mean, I kind of do. I kind of do. <laughs> yeah, 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 I think yeah. I think, you know, I always appreciate increasing the degree of di difficulty here. You're, <laughs> you're very good at what you do for a living. So let's see if we can raise the bar a little bit higher with degree of difficulty. Uh, right. I, I, I am not I'm not going to be there today, unfortunately. Uh, I'm not sick, but I'm not a hundo P, so I don't want to uh, I don't want to be around a bunch of people and uh, potentially catch what they've got or give them if I have something uh, what oh, I my. potentially have. So so I'm, I'm going to set this one out. Although I do love the idea that we have our Christmas party in the office. I'm a big fan, Ramya. Are you? And the menu is what looks really good to me. So I'm really I'm sad that you're missing out on the menu, Dave. Uh, I've been told that someone may sneak me a plate before I before okay. I leave. Yeah, yeah. Perfect. Alex, what do, you what, 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 do you what do you think about shindiggery inside the halls of the office? I kind of like it. Well, you know, especially with within the context of AMI and how we we always want to be very conscious about uh, accessibility. Our office is one of the most accessible accessible places it's in true. you know Toronto. So I mean, it's an easy win in that regard. Um, you're not forcing people to move locations, and especially you know if someone has to drive to another location if they have a vehicle. Well, then you got to find parking. There's there can be a lot of headaches that come with that and a lot of obligation. Whereas if you're already in the office, hey, it's an easy walk around the corner and then you're you're in the party if you got work you need to sneak off and do you can go back to your desk and do it so I I, I, I like the flexibility of that is this a holiday party number one for you Alex for the year 
Uh, yeah, it's the uh, the holiday party for me, and um, you know, this is actually going to be my first AMI one that I've actually been able to attend because. When oh. I first started, I was out in Edmonton. You know, we didn't really do the big Toronto ones. Uh, and then you know, over the course of the years, I would be sick around this time because it's, you know, cold flu season yeah, like yourself, yeah. Dave. You know, it's like you, you'd never want to take a chance or a risk. So I'm excited to actually come in person and enjoy the AMI holiday party. Look at the, you know, you were the Toronto Bureau reporter, but there really wasn't uh, any action in Toronto for a huge chunk of that time because of the old Pando. Well, listen, mm -hmm. I'm not going to see either of you guys today, unfortunately, but thank you both for making a little bit of time have a lovely day and uh, we'll talk to you both tomorrow feel Sounds better good well maybe maybe we'll talk to them tomorrow we'll see how much white wine rumia makes alex drink uh, this afternoon we'll see if there's anything uh, still standing after the party that's all the time there is for the show today things kick off again tomorrow morning at 9 a.m eastern time another dose of academic talk with elizabeth moeller for you how to manage stress around final exams and final papers yes that might be a university or college themed segment but i think there's some stress management tips in general that could go a long way until then i'm dave brown reminding you to play safe play fair but don't forget to have some fun Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Joita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts.